Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. Hey, everyone. This is Paul Sarker from Better Call Paul. Just wanted to remind you that the show is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer unless we separately agree for me to represent you. And the views expressed by Mesh and me are solely our own. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Better Call Paul, the show where we discuss the legal and business side behind the scenes of Hollywood sports and entertainment. I'm your co-host, Paul Sarker, former Marvel lawyer and current big law media attorney. And I'm your other co-host, Mesh Lakani. Paul, we've got a good one ahead of us. I hope everyone had a great holiday weekend. Nothing too exciting on my part for the weekend. I've been traveling so much, just going to chill in the city, try to get a reservation at a restaurant that I have not been able to get a reservation at for like months. This is the weekend to do it, man. Mesh, I would be remiss, though. I want to ask, just reading about all the flooding in Pakistan, is everyone on your end okay? Yeah, man. Thank you. Everyone is okay. You know, we're from Islamabad and Karachi and we have friends in Lahore. The main cities are okay. I mean, Lahore got hit pretty bad, but like it just takes a long time for the water to drain. But like some of these other areas, man, you look at that stuff. It's yeah. pretty, it's pretty terrible. It's so um, tragic to look I mean, at. It, I think it's there were bad tragic. floods in 2010, but maybe not as bad as now. And then the other thing is the glaciers are melting and heat waves slash flooding slash lack of infrastructure and lack of investment in mitigation. It's crazy. Yeah, man. And it is interesting because like as kids, like we would go up north and like you could go up north and look at the glaciers and like climb them and stuff. And, you know, now that these things are melting on top of that with monsoons, like it's just global warming is legit. Yeah. It's a climate disaster of apocalyptic proportions, I think is what the UN called it. And it's a shame. I was looking at pictures of the inland lake. It's like 100 kilometers wide. It's it's our prayers go out. Hopefully we can do something. I know. I mean, it seems like people are coming together. Obviously, foreign aid, a lot of private money is being raised, like individuals are raising money. Uh, Tim Cook, I was actually surprised on Twitter, uh, tweeted about it. And he said Apple is going to provide capital for the relief funds and stuff. But I thought that was you know cool of him to say it on Twitter. So I'm glad that people are paying attention to it. It's not one of those things that the news is barely covering it. It's been actually amazing. I've had a lot of friends who are from the US who've messaged me about it, which is very sweet, but it's also like people know that this is happening, which I think is at least, it's a, that's the only good thing here that people are aware that not only is something like this at a catastrophic level happening in Pakistan, but it is a global climate issue. It is, right. Canary in the coal mine sort of thing and, and the inequity yeah. of it all. Hopefully it doesn't get any worse and things start to drain. But I, I'm glad that your family's okay. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Let's get into it. The US Open this week. Mesh, are you a tennis fan? I am a tennis fan. I'm a tennis fan in like, obviously, Grand Slams, just like with most sports. I want the excitement. US Open, I think just being in New York, like, it's a fun time. I've gone the last few years. I'm going next week. And so I am excited to hopefully, potentially 
you know, see some really, really great tennis. And honestly, it would be so cool if Serena Williams won. Yeah. I mean, so Serena is, you know, she's the GOAT. It's amazing. Bittersweet. She's going for her 24th Grand Slam title. We don't know whether she's going to win tonight. So by the time people are hearing this, she she may not be in the running. But even so, I mean, if, if this is her last tournament, I mean, she kind of discussed this in her Vogue article a couple of weeks ago about how she's evolving, not retiring, but she's going to focus more yeah. on expanding her family and Serena Ventures and venture capital. And as a woman, right, you, she's like, I can't be a fully committed mom and a world class tennis player at this age. It's just like physically impossible. It's not like she's a man where she yeah. can, you know, like Tom Brady, yeah. as she said. No criticism to Tom Brady or anything like that. Just, just that's what she's saying. And kudos to her, you know, for what a career. I watched King Richard. It was amazing. And amazing. You know, just the story amazing. of how hard she worked. Like even the movie and in her article, she's like, I wasn't the best tennis. I wasn't as good as Venus growing up. And she used that as motivation to attack all her flaws, turn anger into a positive, into motivation, and just be so methodical and driven. In, in every aspect of tennis and life. And because of that, I think that's why she is where she is. I mean, it's, it's a part of why she, she is where she is. Yeah, how, how are you not a Serena Williams fan? I mean, 40 years old, the round two match that she had, she looked like, she's like, I want to win this. Beat the number two. It was a close match, but like you could see that, dude, her game was tight. It looked great. I think, you know, I hope that, she wins it, goes off on top. I hope they make a King Richard sequel to the Serena story because a lot of King Richard, I feel, was like it was a lot of focus on Venus right. and Serena, but it was more focused on the early days of Venus. But I would, I would love to see a Serena Williams movie. For sure. I mean, what a role model, hero, figure. Did it on her own terms, worked hard, and stayed humble. And, you know, she's... I know she doesn't have the record in terms of Grand Slams, and she may not get it, but... 23 in this era, as competitive as it is. Bro. I mean, she's the goat. Sick. She's the goat. She, she's, she's the goat. $260 million net worth, sponsored by Nike, Chase. Like, just killing that game. And if one could say Act 1 was her tennis career, Act 2 is her family career, Act 3, she's a venture capitalist. And I think that I think it's amazing. Raised $111 million for her new venture fund. Her husband, Alexis Ohanian, is a G in the tech space, the founder of Reddit, who then went to co-found Initialized Capital and now is 776. You know, who better to have as a partner than like a guy who's been in the business for so long? And I'm sure that they've shared ideas and everything. And like, this is all about deal flow and making the right investments. And I think she's going to kill it. I mean, she's already invested in companies like Masterclass and Daily Harvest and Coinbase and Tonal. Impossible. Possible. She invested in Wondermind, which is co-founded by Selena Gomez. 111 million to focus on women and maybe Lola Media. I mean. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe we'll see. But it's like the second act or second or third act, depending on, on where you are in your career. But like Nas did it. Nas did a hell of a job investing post his rap career and it just killed it as well. You know, Robin Hood, Coinbase, you have all these musicians and actors. I mean, Ashton Kutcher did it, Kevin Durant's doing it. I think Serena's going to smash it. Ryan Reynolds? Yeah. No, I mean, here's the thing. I remember growing up, we would read these stories, and A-Rod even did a show on CNBC about this, like athletes that would sign these $100 million contracts and then be broke like three years later or four years later after they're playing because they would spend it on like cars and houses and unsustainable lifestyles. 
I like how the narrative is sort of shifted and it's like they're becoming business people, right? So they're taking it as like their initial seed capital for all their different ventures like LeBron and Tiger and Serena. It's much more sort of like sophisticated and it's like, hey, this is a head start, but we're trying to create like multi-generational wealth and also bring up our communities. Like Serena said in her article, yeah, 98% of VC funding goes to companies that are run by men, right? So like men right, are writing right. checks to other men. She thought at first she was shocked that to hear there was only 2%. And, you know, she's one of the, you know, women that can write these checks and good for her. She's successful in every phase and she's looking for women and minority businesses. And on top of that, she's got a really good team. She's got Cheryl Sandberg, former COO of Facebook. She's got Chris Lyons, who is a VC partner in Andreessen Horowitz, obviously Alexis Ohanian, who she probably like will be doing deals with. She's got like a real good crew to be making good decisions. And obviously she's already been doing this, but like what better way to do this with impact than have some of the best in the business backing you. And also just like overseeing the stuff that you're doing as well. And by saying by overseeing, it's just like you're looking at stuff together. And I think it's going to be amazing. Good for her. And so last sort of update is a lot of people are saying you can't really make a movie about Marilyn Monroe. She's untouchable. No one should try to sort of portray her. So it's a very sort of high bar. However, you know, Ana de Armas is starring in Blonde, which will be coming out on Netflix September 28th, but it'll be premiering at the Venice Film Festival this week. The recent sort of buzz is that it got an NC-17 rating from the MPA and the director, Andrew Dominic and Ana de Armas are both like shocked by that because there's much more sort of sexually explicit content and more provocative stuff in other movies that get R ratings. So the question is, why did the ratings board rate this so highly? Because NC-17, while it does generate some buzz, does limit your audience reach significantly. And I'm sure Netflix probably wanted something that was an R rating. Yeah, but isn't it like, what ends up happening is that you get an NC-17 rating and then you have to make edits to get into the R rating. I mean, American Pie was originally NC-17 and they clearly made some edits to make it like an R-rated movie. So I'd imagine after it premieres at Venice, depending on the reaction from folks, Netflix is going to be like, you better edit this movie so that we can release it as an R rating because I can't imagine Netflix wants to release a movie that's NC-17. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. We'd, we'd have to speculate on that. I mean, Andrew Dominic has said that He's not changing the movie. You know, it is what it is. Okay. And I think they've already done a significant amount of editing. But what he said was in the course of making it, he thought he was playing within the R-rated sandbox. Like he was sticking to those sorts of, right. you know, the the typical requirements. And it's not necessarily a question of like, I don't think a scene here or there. I think he's saying that there were some ambiguous situations in Marilyn Monroe's life. And she may have been, in situations where she was exploited for her looks or her youth or whatever. And so, like, it's a controversial story. I mean, she committed, arguably committed suicide at 36 years old. She was sort of, like, she grew up in the spotlight, and she, yes, she was the biggest female star in the world, but she was also exploited at times. So if you're going to tell that story in an authentic way, I mean, maybe it is an NC-17. I, I, I don't know. The other interesting thing is that the movie's press, a lot of the press has been around it being, before it got the NC-17 rating, yes, it's a Marilyn Monroe movie. Ana de Armas is you know, a rising star in Hollywood right now. She killed it in Knives Out. She killed it in the last Bond movie. But a lot of the commentary has been around like, you know, the sexual content in the movie. And that's been talked about for months now. 
And so I wonder, again, speculating here is like, is this, you know, there's no such thing as bad press. People are probably going to want to watch this movie because of all the commentary around this rating. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the rating increases the buzz, but it limits the size of the people that can see it, right? So that's, yeah, as opposed to it being R. And you're right. I mean, maybe Netflix will exert some sort of creative control after the Venice Film Festival remains to be seen. But we'll talk about another movie that's benefiting from some, uh, I guess you could call it gossipy press after the break. So, Mesh, we were talking about Blonde and how the NC-17 rating is generating a lot of buzz for the movie. Similarly, Olivia Wilde's film, her second directorial work after Booksmart, Don't Worry Darling, is coming out. It's also premiering at the Venice Film Festival, and there's been a ton of media buzz around (laughs) not the film itself, but some controversy among Florence Pugh, Olivia Wilde, and Shia LaBeouf, who was originally the male lead and right. left the film. He said he quit. She said... She fired him. Right. So her words, I think they were very carefully chosen when she did her interview. I mean, she said that she had to make a decision to protect her cast and that his process wasn't conducive to the best outcome and was yeah. combative at times. So the implication was, and she certainly didn't deny that she fired him. That was definitely the implication. And it caused him to reach out to Variety and say, hey, wait a minute, Uh, I quit. And I sent you an email about my concerns. I quit because there was no time to rehearse. And furthermore, you tried to win me back. You tried to reconcile this. You sent me this video saying, hey, let's work this out. Let's give it another shot. She said, I'm not ready to give up on this yet. Exactly. So in his email to Olivia, he was like, I realize that this could just be clickbait, right? Like this, your whole saying that you fired me could be you opportunistically capitalizing on the bad press about me, about the fact that I've been accused of abuse and sued by my ex-girlfriend or, you know, whatever else. But like, this is a false narrative. And I'm a dad now. My daughter, she can't read now, but a couple of years when she's able to read, she's going to come across these stories and be like, dad, you were fired from Don't Worry, Darling, for being combative on set. And he's like, that's just not true. Like, you know, it, it wasn't working out creatively. We didn't have enough time to rehearse. And I stepped aside. And that's why I left. Well, the interesting thing here is that there's a couple of other pieces like Florence Pugh already had an issue with the way the trailer is depicting like everyone's just focused on her sex scenes with Harry Styles like that. She's like, I don't want the movie. The movie is more than that. It's not just about like Harry Styles and mine sex scenes. And so she has been promoting the movie as much as I'm sure Olivia Wilde wants her to. And then on top of that, there are rumors that when Shia LaBeouf was cast, there is tension between Florence Pugh and Shia LaBeouf. And Shia LaBeouf is known to have a lot of tension on set. There's a lot of actors that don't want to work with him anymore. He's just had a lot of controversy in general. And so then there's that. And then, of course, then there's the ex-girlfriend, FKA Twigs, who is you know suing Shia for abusive relationship and assault. And so it would make sense for Olivia Wilde to be like, maybe we shouldn't attach Shia to this movie. It would, but for that video. But when he has this video of her trying to win him back and sort of play like the conciliatory role, like, hey, let's give this another shot. That's where he had to kind of defend himself, right? Like he had this, the narrative makes a lot of sense. Like, oh, Shai is this combative guy. He's difficult to work with despite his talent. And Harry Styles is like the biggest pop star in the world or one of them. 
And also, is he dating Olivia Wilde? They don't really publicly talk about it, but that's the speculation. So it would make a lot of sense. And on top of that, as you said, Florence Pugh is not enthusiastically marketing the film. And this could all be just to drum up interest in the film. I mean, this whole yeah. story, I mean, it broke a week before it's supposed to come out. But Shia, he admitted to making mistakes in the past and to abusing FKA Twigs and said, like, I realize I hurt her. And there's a time and place to deal with that. And that will be addressed separately. But I don't want to just be painted with this one broad brush, right? And he's stepping in to say, these are two different situations. And one really doesn't have anything to do with the other because he could have very easily stayed in the movie if he didn't quit. Yeah, and it's also like, you know, for Shia right now, you know, movie roles that were a dime a dozen for him back in the past, like, you know, when he released Honey Boy, People loved the movie, but he didn't get the critical acclaim that he wanted. I was actually listening to him on The Real Ones podcast, which is hosted by John Bernthal, The Punisher, a.k.a. the guy from The Walking Dead. I mean, I'm a big John Bernthal fan, and it was really interesting to listen to him talk. John Bernthal was basically calling him out on you know, what he did. He's like, look, I'm your friend. Like, I don't want you to ever do something like this again. But Shia openly wanted to talk about it. And he's like, I'm not trying to hide away from this. I think more men need accountability. I hurt that woman. I'll owe it for the rest of my life. You know, I've treated people terribly. I'm an asshole on set. I'm egotistical. I'm selfish. He was basically just saying that, like, I know I'm very difficult to work with because it was a competition for me. So I think it's also a little saving face for Shia where he's like, I don't need another person saying that I was trouble on set and I got fired. You know, he still needs to get movie roles, you know, and I think the podcast with the real ones, I urge people to listen to it because, you know, one could say, yes, he did some absolutely terrible things and things that no one should ever do and they should be held accountable for it. But I do think that podcast helped him in terms of getting his, not story, but like just getting Shia out in public and talking about this stuff and admitting all the wrong stuff. And and I do think that actually helps him in his career. Maybe now their directors are listening to it and they see it. Well, he just got cast in Megalopolis. Exactly. You know, he's a talented actor and he's also methodical. I know he doesn't like the term method actor, but he's, he's right. talented and he's young. I mean, he's 36. So not trying to sort of like absolve him of any of his wrongdoing in the past. And obviously you have to be a team player and get along well with others. But you also have the right to sort of defend yourself yeah. when you're being unfairly characterized or when things that are not true are being sort of rumors are being spread about you. So it's interesting because in the industry, right, like normally you wouldn't have this sort of public dialogue about someone getting fired. Like it's very hush hush, like creative differences or something vague. And contractually, directors, studios, they have the right usually to fire actors with or without cause, right? It's kind of like, if it's not working out creatively. Quick question though, Paul, are you paid before the movie starts or are you paid after? Like, how do those contracts work? So usually you're paid uh, when the movie goes into production and then weekly right. throughout the course of the film. But at someone at Shia's level will have a sort of pay or play clause. So it's like even if they're not actually in the movie, if they're removed from the movie without them being in breach of a contract, they still get their fee. So mm. it's like if you take me off the market and make me clear my schedule to work on this film and I turn down right. other roles, if your financing doesn't come together or your schedule changes or you end up 
for whatever reason, not wanting to use me and I, I was ready, willing and able to do it, then I get paid my fee. Now, he's saying he quit. So if you quit, then you don't get paid your fee. But generally speaking, if you're fired for something outside your control through no fault of your own, you can still get your fee if you're pay or play. But I don't know that this was about that. I think this was about like he creatively didn't want to be on the film. But then after the fact, when he gets dragged through the mud, he's defending himself. And it could be non-disparagement. It could, I mean, technically it could even be defamation if, if she's saying things about him that aren't true and they're harming his reputation and his ability to, to get work. Yeah, and I think, well, one, obviously the lawsuit and he's addressed it and he's talked about it. So he's kind of put himself out there that he is difficult. He was even telling John Bernthal because they've been on set together. But to your point about we're not supposed to really know like these changes that happen behind the scenes, I had no idea Shia LaBeouf was even cast in this movie until this whole thing came out. I thought it was Harry Styles from the beginning. So I was like, oh, I didn't even know that Shia was even a part of this project until this whole thing came out. Well, that's exactly the point. And that's why people are kind of criticizing Olivia Wilde or they're saying, was she being opportunistic? Because she basically brought this whole thing up that didn't need to be brought up, right? Like she right. last week does an interview where she says, oh, by the way, we had to move. I had I made the decision to move on from Shia LaBeouf because he wasn't conducive to the rest of the team and he was combative and I have to protect my cast. And that's when he was like, hey, wait a minute. And he releases the emails and the video and sends them to Variety because he wants to clear his name. So, right. This whole thing right. wouldn't have been a right. story. But now people are talking about it and it happens to be the week before release. Well, and it was the, the story before that was Florence Pugh's issue with like the trailer and the way the movie was being depicted. And now no one's really talking about that. Now it's about Shia. Well, yeah, it's a little bit of both because even in her video, in Olivia Wilde's sort of like reconciliation video to Shia LaBeouf, she's like, I think we have a plan to deal with Flo, right? Or whatever. So right, like, the whole right, thing right. is very, like she looks like she's trying to mend fences and make everyone happy and sing Kumbaya. And then, you know, fast forward a week before the movie comes out, she's like, yeah, no, I fired. I mean- it's not to say it's impossible for her to want to try to work things out and then later change her mind and make a creative decision to you know move on from Shia LaBeouf. And if the movie does well at the Venice Film Festival, look, I mean, I was already intrigued by the trailer. I like Florence Pugh. I'm interested in Olivia Wilde as a director. Booksmart was a good movie. And if the results are that, hey, the movie's good and you have all this stuff happening, yeah, I'm going to watch this movie. For sure, yeah. I mean, maybe if this whole thing was just a PR stunt, then... Well done. But if not, then I do think Shia deserves the right to clear his name. Right. Okay, cool. One more movie to talk about after the break. Okay, Paul. So Top Gun Maverick released in May. We're still talking about it. So Top Gun earned $660 million in the US box office, seventh highest grossing movie of all time, $1.4 billion worldwide since its May release. What's the story now, Paul? Like what's going on since we last chatted about this? So in episode 18, we talked about how Top Gun Maverick was super successful, was crushing the box office, but Paramount had received a complaint, a legal complaint from the family of the author who wrote the original 1983 article Top Guns about the Top Gun Flight Academy, the naval sort of school for the best of the best pilots. He wrote the article in 1983. Paramount did a copyright assignment to take the motion picture rights for that article, which led to the 1986 Top Gun film. Then 
in 2018, the family served a notice of termination of the copyright assignment and said, hey, we're taking back the rights to this article. You can't make any more films based on this article. 2022, and they sue and they say, hey, you're infringing our copyright. You made a movie based on Top Gun. That's based on our article. You didn't have the copyright license to do that. We're suing you for infringement. We want an injunction or at least a slice of the profits from the movie, which, as you described, one of the highest grossing films of all time, $1.4 billion in box office and counting. It's just on it's on EST now. It isn't yet on Paramount+, Plus, but the, it's going to keep making money, right? So yeah. the family's saying, hey, give us a piece of the pie. And the reason we're talking about it now is because Paramount lawyered up and they filed a motion to dismiss last week, basically saying there are no claims here. So they're filing a motion 12B6, which for the non-lawyers out there is a motion to dismiss the complaint because it fails to state a cause of action, meaning even if you took a favorable read of what the plaintiff's saying factually, they didn't meet the elements of the cause of action because in this case, Paramount didn't steal any items or infringe any items that are actually protected copyright. They're saying that the article in 1983 was mostly factual, which Top Gun is a factual thing that exists. It's the name of the Navy school. There are hotshot pilots that are the best of the best and do these really intense, daring missions. And they train to go up against Russian and other enemies, right? So it's like, that's all factual. And this movie has some of those elements, but nothing else in the movie actually infringes any original copyrightable work from the 1983 article. They're basically making the argument that you can't copyright facts. So for example, if I told you about the performance of the economy in 2020 and 2021 and what the inflation rates were and CPI, and I read those off, those statistics, you could then repeat that. That's not copyright infringement, right? Because you can't really infringe facts. There's no copyright protection in facts. You really need a creative expression, like like a fictional story. Well, let me ask you a question because they're saying, obviously, it's not derivative work, but- in this movie that we've both seen, they're using the same characters or some of the same characters, obviously Maverick being one of them. They keep references to Goose, references to Iceman. I mean, he's in the movie as well. They have similar scenes as well. They have the great balls of fire scene. They've got the beach scene, i.e. the volleyball scene. I mean, aren't those similar creative pieces of work? Like, wouldn't they have an argument then? Well, so what they're saying, what Paramount's saying is those were original to the first movie. The plaintiff isn't saying they infringed the first movie. What they're saying is they infringed the 1983 article. So Paramount's saying there's nothing in the 1983 article that the author wrote that was actually used in this film other than facts. The lawyer said is they don't have a monopoly over the use of Top Gun in entertainment. Right. And- They're not using the same characters from the article. They're not using the same storyline from the article. They're not using the same plot or sequence or tone or anything. So what they're saying is all the things that make a work creative, which their list is plot, themes, dialogue, mood, setting, pace, characters, sequence of events, all of those factors are different because our movie... Top Gun Maverick is a story about redemption and reconciliation. And he's a brash pilot, but then he gets grounded and he goes back and he and Iceman makes him an instructor. So like it's a completely different storyline than this 1983 article. 
the authors have no ownership in the 1986 movie. So there's no creative overlap other than things that are purely factual. So they're saying any similarities that exist are only in terms of facts, not actual creatively protectable elements. And that's their view. I think there's a counter argument there, which is obviously they're making the best case for Paramount. But the counter argument is, well, if that's how you felt, then why did you get a a license in 1983 to make the movie in 1986? Right. If all it was was facts then why did you need the copyright assignment? That's interesting. I mean, it seems like, based on your first argument, I was like, yeah, I can see this getting thrown out. And now in the second one, it does make sense because when you're saying that it's just based on these these factual items and this thing exists, why would you give them a license in the first place? But then in my head, I thought the license was for, then they they have some type of ownership in the original movie. No, so, so basically, in episode 18, we speculated. We didn't have really any facts, but we we were like, what was Paramount's strategy? Why didn't they try to do some settlement before right. this movie came out and made a billion and a half dollars? Why didn't they try to work this out then? Right, like do an amendment, work out a deal, say, okay, yeah, you're terminating, let's do a t- copyright extension, let's do a new deal, let's give you a credit in the movie. Like We thought, speculating, that there was probably some shred of an argument enough to make them want to settle this before the movie came out and made a billion dollars. Because if you lose... You're liable Mm -hmm. to give up a percentage of your profits. Now, it depends on how much of the work was copyrighted and all that, and that would go to a jury. But, you know, now we know after reading their response to the complaint that Paramount feels there was no infringement because there was nothing that was protectable that was used. There's no substantial similarity between any copyrightable elements from the article. That's their defense. I think there's two sides to every story. And if there was nothing in the article that, other than facts, then, you know, why did they feel they needed a copyright assignment in 1983 to make the first movie? That whole thing is very strange. Paramount's lawyers don't get into that. They just say, you know, they're not complaining about the first movie. They're not saying the first movie infringed. Well, obviously they didn't because they had a copyright interest in the article for 1986 movie. So my thinking is (laughs) Paramount's lawyers aren't cheap. They're going to be spending money in this defense could yeah. that money have been better used just doing a new deal with them right. a year ago or two years ago? I don't know. But now it's at the point where it's a headache. Does this motion to dismiss get granted? I don't know. Maybe it makes it to the next stage. Maybe maybe it goes towards closer to trial. And then they go through discovery and they look at what was made when. And this could go to a jury. And then then you'd have to be in, in serious settlement discussion. If if they make this case for dismissal, does the family's lawyer now, do they have a chance to do something or do they have to wait for the judge to make a decision and then they do something or they do they like do something now? So there's a hearing September 26th where the plaintiff's lawyer and Paramount's lawyers will talk through this with the judge and then the, the judge will decide Got it. whether to Got it. grant or whether to order more information or to have another brief. So you can be sure that the plaintiff's lawyer is going to respond to this request to dismiss stating why they have a case, right? So basically Paramount's saying, okay, cool, we read your complaint. You didn't even attach a 1983 article to it. You made a bunch of sort of like non-specific general statements about infringement, but in reality, you didn't state a claim because anything that we copied was only factual. Very interesting. I'm invested now in this to see what happens. I mean, this alone could be a Top Gun spinoff. Well, and I would say the defense lawyers, I think they did. They wrote a great brief. It's very compelling. I was convinced. I yeah, just, I was convinced too. I don't know how it's going to play out. 
I mean, that's why yeah. these lawyers get the big bucks, right? Because like, there's a lot of money at stake. Interesting. So the, it's all in the judge's hands then. Correct. The judge could say, hey, I think there's something here. Let's go to discovery. Let's get more facts. Let's either have a judge or jury sort of make this decision. Or the judge could say, okay, based on the law, as it's interpreted in the Ninth Circuit in California, I agree with you. Even if everything they said is true, there's not enough here for it to be a claim. I mean, my takeaway would be the defense's brief was very well done. And it's interesting to see how this plays out. It will be. It will be interesting. And uh, we'll be following it. So great analysis, Paul, as always. Thank you, Mesh. I think we're done for now. Yeah, that's our show for this week. Thanks for listening, everyone. Definitely follow us on Better Call Paul, the podcast, on Instagram at Better Call Paul, the podcast. And make sure you're subscribed to us on Apple, Spotify, wherever you choose to listen. Follow Fountain. me at Mesh Lakani on Twitter. Listen to us on Fountain. <laughs> Fountain as well. This episode is edited and produced by Valentino Rivera and Marco Seiler Gonzalez. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. Take care, everyone.